0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host.
1: I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, cave dweller. I wonder,
0: are you speaking very slowly there because
1: this movie that we're about to talk about is very (laughs) slow and long? It took a long time to get through. But you know, it's one of those movies that feels even longer.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right. What movie is that? Well, uh, in this uh, season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1996. And that long, slow movie is the best picture winner of 1996, The English Patient. Not only the best picture winner, but nine Oscars went to this film. I know. Of, had that Had that ever happened before? Had anything ever won a nine before? Oh, shit. I mean, I should have looked that up. It's possible. I don't know that it's a record or it maybe was a record at the time, but has since been broken. That I'm not sure about. I feel like that's a, that's a, a failing on our part that we did not look that up. But even yeah, we if got it's not Dave, a record- we got Dave. He'll, he'll look it up. All me. right, Dave, Dave, producer Dave can find that out for us while we're talking, but- um, I'll be
2: working on it, guys.
0: Thank you, Dave. But I mean, in the meantime, either way, that's, I mean, if it's not a record, it's still up there with the most that any movie has won. Uh, It won Best Picture. It won Best uh, Supporting Actress for Juliette Binoche, Best Director for Anthony Minghella. It won Best Editing. And one thing I did notice that it's the first movie ever to win Best Editing for digital editing rather than physical film editing. Uh, It won Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Score, and Best Sound.
1: So, and Josh, uh, Josh, yes. I got an update. Beep, 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 breaking uh, in with an update. That's me yeah. breaking in. Go ben ahead. Hur won 11 Oscars okay. in 1959. Titanic, which was the year after, 111, 11. And then Lord of the Rings also won 11.
0: So. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking Lord of the Rings yeah. probably uh, had beaten it. But uh, so I guess this was not, there was one at the time that had done better. And then since then, it's been surpassed a few times. But still, I mean, I think. M- most of the time, it's it's a little more evenly spread out, and so a movie that wins nine Oscars is is pretty uh, pretty remarkable. It did also win Best Picture at the Golden Globes and at the Baftas, uh, among you know a number of critics awards and whatnot, and it was a box office success. It grossed two hundred and thirty two million dollars on a thirty one million dollar budget, and and I would also say that regardless of what you think of this movie. It certainly looks like it costs more than $31 million. So uh impressively uh, produced there by Anthony Minghella on a budget that was not nearly as big as a movie of this scope might have warranted.
1: Josh, beep, 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 oh, beep, wow. beep, beep, okay. beep, 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 breaking please, news. I got please, some more breaking please, news. Please, please doing, stop beeping. <laughs> I can't help it. It's a breaking news song. Gigi had, in 1959 had nine Oscars. Yeah. The Last Emperor, 1986, nine Oscars also, Josh. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. I, oh, West Side Story, 10 Oscars, Josh. Yeah. 10. So right. uh, so I was completely wrong with that.
2: Jason's but, good at last minute research. But, but, really and be- and beeping.
1: Very good at yeah. beeping. And beeping. But nine was yeah. a lot, and I do want to agree with you, whether you like this movie or not, it definitely captures that sweeping wartime epic feel to it uh, for a lower budget than we would
0: assume. Right. Yeah. I think that was my point, is that like the they made those resources go a long way. And it paid off, obviously, because the, the the smaller budget, the profit was even bigger when it became a big hit. Uh and it was certainly a pop culture phenomenon. Uh it was based on the novel by Michael Andachi or Anjati. I'm not I am not I've seen his pronounced uh, different ways. Anyway, I'm so the, glad
1: that you said his that, name and not began. that that I butchered <laughs> that,
0: that name first. Um and I mean the novel also was like a bestseller and was was highly acclaimed and was a big deal before the movie came out so uh I think there was a lo- a level of anticipation from people who had read that book uh who were curious to see how it would be adapted and it was it was thought by many before this to be somewhat unadaptable in the way that it was structured so uh yeah the movie was a big deal. It's a sweeping historical epic set during World War II, during the end of World War II, starring Ray Fiennes, Juliet Binoche, Kristen Scott Thomas, Willem Dafoe, Colin Firth—quite an all-star cast as well. Yeah, at the time. yeah.
1: The one thing I wanted to say about the book is when I was researching it, and you know, uh, that one of the one of the anecdotes about it is that Anthony Minghella read the book in one sitting, and uh, when he looked up when he was done, he didn't know where he was. <laughs> it just kind of had that effect on him. So
0: yeah, I guess it was very absurd for, for a second there. I thought you were going to say that you had read the book in anticipation of this podcast, which I would have been very impressed with.
1: But... No, no, I, I, I am reading another interesting adventurer book at the moment, the lost city of the monkey God. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, maybe it'll be adapted into a movie and we'll talk about it. Sometime. There's no romance in it, but, um, uh-huh. there is a lot of, uh, and swashbuckling, adventuring into the jungle, not into the desert. In this
0: one, oh, all right. Well, there's some there's some adventure in this movie. I think we can say. I agree. Yeah. So this movie was heavily critically acclaimed. In addition to its uh, awards and its box office success, it got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, and uh, Gene Siskel had it at number four on his list of the top ten movies of 1996. Roger Ebert, in his review, said, Backward into memory, forward into loss and desire, the English patient searches for answers that will answer nothing. This poetic, evocative film version of the famous novel by Michael Anjati circles down through layers of mystery until all of the puzzles in the story have been solved, and only the great wound of a doomed love remains. It is the kind of movie you can see twice. First for the questions, the second time for the answers. I don't know Um, if I'd want to sit through this again.
1: (laughs) Hey Josh, was (laughs) real nice. That was real nice the way you read that.
0: Well, thank you. It's kind of a kind of a lyrical review. I was trying to convey that 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 sense of airiness that Roger Ebert is 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 going for here. Yeah. So yeah,
1: he uh, he got swept up in the um, throwback nature of this epic wartime film, and uh, he wasn't the only one, as we know.
0: Yeah, that's true, and he didn't. I don't know if I if it's any in in any of the quotes I have, but a lot of people compared it to stuff like uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Doctor Zhivago. These very long, very big wartime epics. Um, I haven't actually seen either of those. Yeah, no
1: one compared it to Ishtar. No one compared (laughs) it to Ishtar. That's true.
0: Um, Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, and she was a little critical. She said. In exchange for a sharp central story, or even one that is easily described, the film offers such indelible images as cave paintings of swimmers in the desert, a sandstorm of mysterious and prophetic fury as Almashi and Catherine are thrown together. Those are the characters played by Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas. And the English patient's great treasure, a well worn, memento filled volume of Herodotus. Even without that book, the film's reverence for history and literature would be very clear. I think reverent is a good word for this movie. It feels very like respectful of, you know, it's like it's a, it's like the movie equivalent of like a dusty book in the library or something like that.
1: Merchant Ivory presents The English Patient.
0: Yeah, it was not a Merchant Ivory movie which were, you know, there were plenty of those in the 90s. That was kind of their heyday, um but it does it does have a similar feel to some Merchant Ivory films.
1: Right.
0: Um, that was why I said it, Josh. That yeah, it. that's, I, I just, you know, <laughs> wanted to be clear that it isn't actually a Ivory movie. But, uh, but no, you're absolutely right. It, 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 it has a, a similar sensibility. And uh, one critic who was, was somewhat negative, Todd McCarthy in Variety, said long, involving, and rather parched emotionally, The English Patient is a respectable, intelligent, but less than stirring adaptation of an imposingly dense and layered novel. Set against the stunning backdrops of pre-war North Africa and the end of hostilities in Italy, this detailed time-jumping study of the intertwined fates of several of the battle's victims carries the prestige to be a strong attraction for upscale audiences. And Miramax can be counted upon to try to push it as far into the mainstream as possible. So that was a bit of a prophetic observation from Todd McCarthy himself, because that's certainly what ended up happening. Yeah. I,
1: and I agree with that. I mean, let's end the episode. He kind of nailed it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Todd McCarthy's awesome
0: movie here on The English Patient. So I'm interested. I'm I'm gathering from your tone here that you did not like watching this movie this time, but I remember you telling me you had seen it before and liked
1: it. Is that correct? Well, let me, I did see it before. Let me start there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I saw it when I was in Hawaii as a 16 year old uh, with my brother and our older cousin, who was uh, quite the wisecracker in the theater. So, how could you not like that? You know, you're going to the what? movies with your cousin in Hawaii, and he, he's mystery science theatering this thing up, you know? Uh, it was, so he was. He was making fun of the movie in the theater while you were watching it. I believe he was, yes. But oh uh, man, yeah.
0: I hope there was no one else in the theater because that is a horrible thing to do. Well, there
1: were plenty of people there. Josh, oh, that's good. I don't, I don't remember if any of them heard it though because we were, we were so enraptured with this tale of. Uh, characters and their travails <laughs> like tale
0: of characters and their travails
1: <laughs> the description of literally any movie ever made yeah. and and their the places they were josh and um uh-huh. and the way they interacted with one another you know mm-hmm. and sure um, sure things like that they all were were um costumes and I
2: just like the idea that Jason all this time has been passing himself off as someone who liked the English patient when it was really his friend making fun of it. No, so I, don't,
1: so <laughs> I honestly, I mean, if, if we were going to give it a ranking or like a rating now, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a negative rating. I didn't dislike it. It's just a trudge to get through. I don't love it by any means. I don't think it was the best picture of 1996. Like McCarthy says, I, I, I uh, am a respectful audience member who, uh, who can see the value in this, but I don't think it's a great movie and definitely not the best movie of that year.
0: Yeah. Well, clearly your cousin was not a respectful audience member.
1: Maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm pushing that a little too hard. Maybe there were just a few good, a few good zingers at the screen while we were (laughs) enjoying it. It's tough to not like things when you're in Hawaii, Josh, that's, that's the lesson here.
0: Guess so. I have never been to Hawaii, but but I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of like, so did you like just the experience of going and hanging out with your cousin, and it was fun, or did yeah. you genuinely
1: like the movie at no, the time? I did like the movie at the time. I didn't love it, but I liked it. But also, like, even watching this, and we get into arguments about this all the time. And quick plug for Dave's uh, Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. I'm a I am an advocate of uh, of all the streaming services, but I do think this film is a much better watch on the big screen, you know, Mm. the way it looks, the way, you know, the sweeping nature of it. Like, I think you need the big screen for that with a lot of pee breaks. But uh, (laughs) yeah, no, I did like it at the time. I I did because I would remember you, you know, when you watch something this long, you would remember disliking it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I, I agree with you that and I didn't see this movie in 1996 for whatever reason. I'm sure I had heard of it, but I never watched it. And so I just watched it at home recently and watching it at home, I thought I would have liked this movie a lot more if I watched it in a theater. Like this is the kind of movie that you should get to see yes. in a so yeah, So I, I agree with you there. And yeah, I didn't know anything... Uh, I don't think I even knew what this movie was about. I think if you had asked me what it was about, I would have said uh, it's about three hours. It's
1: about uh, there you go. I thought you. <laughs> sorry, were I was I was the... I was
0: saving that one up, and I just <laughs> had to throw it in there
1: somewhere. And I would say it's about characters and their travails, yeah. <laughs> right? Their interactions and uh, the places yeah. they go. Yeah. yeah, Dave, did you get to
0: see this in a theater? As you're the big theater guy.
2: I know, and I agree with you guys. This would have been a lot better in the theater, but I uh, you know, I enjoyed it. It was my first time seeing it. Good
1: yeah. for you. What are you eating? Dave's eating while we're uh, doing this podcast.
2: Sorry, guys. I haven't uh, eaten anything in quite a while. I, I'm, e- I'm eating a keto peanut butter cup.
1: Ah, I was not that far off, Josh, from the Raisinets. Mm-hmm. You were very, very far off, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. You're in the theater. You got your popcorn. You got your Raisinets. You mix them together. That's a nice little trick. You got the English patient and all those kind of stunning uh, vistas of the desert. You can see how it's an enjoyable big screen watch. Yeah, I think so. Vistas. That's definitely a a good. I'm
0: I'm, honestly like that is exactly what this movie has going for it is a lot of uh, a lot of vistas.
2: I did make myself popcorn for this, by the way. Oh, That's all great, right, you know. yeah, that helps. Yeah.
0: I, I, maybe that mm-hmm. would have that was our mistake. We didn't we didn't make popcorn this time, and we would have enjoyed it more. So, if we had.
1: so, so, Josh, you didn't like it. Uh, we'll get to that. I didn't like it as much as the first time. But let's give a little more background. Time Magazine said it was the best film of 1996. It's uh, ranked 56 in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions, which I disagree with. I don't think that love story was that epic as much as they made it out to be. And uh, British Film Institute, top 100 British films, number 55. So, yeah. uh, so those are some things. Yeah, those are some things.
0: And I think it still has a decent reputation. And I wouldn't say that I disliked it. I think like you, I didn't dislike it, but I definitely didn't love it. And I thought it had plenty of flaws. But uh, we can talk about all those flaws when we uh, come back and get into our general thoughts on The English Patient. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we are talking about the best picture Oscar winner, Anthony Minghella's The English Patient, which we were not super into, I guess you could say. I feel like this is a tradition of a lot of maybe, yeah, quite a few best picture winners I think that we've talked about in our various seasons that were like respectable, but not like great movies.
1: Yeah. So 89 was Miss Daisy. Right. Yeah. And uh, 2007 was
0: something I don't remember. Man, we've done too many episodes. For <laughs> and 94 was Forrest Gump. So. Yes. Wasn't it no I...
1: country for old men.
0: Okay, that's no, fair. Yeah, no no, no, no country is the
1: one we both like the best. Yeah, instead. that is the best. Yeah.
0: Certainly the best of those uh, four movies. But there.
1: but yeah, but you know, going going forward and backwards, like I'm sure. If we watched uh, all the best pictures, we would find a lot of them that, like, you're like, yeah, this this makes sense as an Oscar winner, but it doesn't really hold up. I mean, this is this is the classic Miramax Oscar bait film of the '90s, is it not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's interesting too that this. I mean, not only is there that Miramax like campaigning aspect that made a huge difference in the success of this movie at the Oscars. But I think this is the kind of movie that you think of as winning an Oscar in like the '70s and '80s, maybe, uh, or even earlier than that. It's a I'd very say old, earlier
1: '50s, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, but even all the, all through, you know, those those it's a very old fashioned kind of movie. Uh, I mean, even though it has like, you know, some more explicit sex scenes or whatever than a movie from from those older periods would have. And it, so it, it wins the Oscar at a time when there was this massive boom in indie film, as we've talked about in many episodes in this season and in our 1994 season. And you know, of course, the in 1996, the big movie was Fargo, the Cohen Brothers film that that really was the main contender as far from that indie world to make a splash. But instead of giving the Oscar to that, they give it to this very old-fashioned movie, and it, it really feels like an expression of how the Academy feels about what deserves an award.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny, because it's like, you know, we're in the um, time period of Oscars So White right now, and um, not saying it wasn't so white back then, but it was like, because it was still so white, but no one was saying Oscars So White back then. Not, but it, they were saying, like, Oscars So Formal, Oscars So Predictable. You know, Oscar is so not edgy because look, we, we, we talked about secrets and lies on this um, podcast this season. That was up for best picture. I think that's a more interesting movie. You mentioned uh, Fargo, amazing film. The two others are Jerry, Jerry Maguire and Shine, which like great movies, dude. Yeah, I've never
0: seen Shine, but uh, it does, it does feel like this was the safest kind of choice. This was the least bold choice that the Academy could make. But let's talk about the movie as a whole. I mean, aside from whether it won an award or not, I mean, it stands on its own as a film. And uh, I don't know if we should try to summarize the plot. As some of those uh, reviews alluded to, it is a bit convoluted, but basically it takes place in two timelines.
1: Yeah. And it moves back and forth.
0: Yes. And and that's, I think, one of the things that this movie does effectively is is constantly moving back and forth. And even though the story can be a little complicated, I didn't really feel like it was ever hard to follow and understand what was going on. Oh, I definitely did. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it does. It switches between these two time periods. Uh, The the sort of later period is at the end of World War II in Italy, with Juliette Binoche as this French Canadian nurse, Hannah, and she comes across the English patient played by Ray Fiennes, who has been severely burned in a in a plane crash, a plane that he was flying shot down, and he's got memory loss. And she decides that she's going to take care of him, and she sets up in this is like abandoned monastery. Uh, so that she can nurse him because he's so severely injured, and some other people show up, uh, and then we get the some flashbacks. Some other
1: people show up. I'm trying to. Places. I'm
0: trying. To, I'm trying to simplify it here <laughs> so that we don't spend the whole podcast talking about the plot, but just to give you a basic sense. Uh, and then in the in the flashbacks, we see Ray Fine's character uh, before he was burned beyond recognition. He is Count Almashi, a Hungarian explorer cartographer, archeologist. He's sort of like Indiana Amazing. Jones.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Could you imagine uh, if you had a business card that said explorer, cartographer, archeologist, man, that would be and, awesome. And Hungarian count. I mean, you know, you can't beat that. You could just make
2: yourself one and you, then you could, you have could, it.
1: you could have it, but you deep down, you would know it's a lie. And I think everyone else would too. <laughs> Probably. Yeah.
0: So he is exploring, uh, the desert in, uh, Egypt the Libyan, Libya.
1: uh, yeah, the border on Egypt.
0: Yeah, and Yeah, and and staying in Cairo a lot of the time. And he encounters this woman, Catherine, played by K- Kristen Scott Thomas, who's there with her husband, played by Colin Firth, who is a benefactor of the expedition. And Almashi and Catherine start a torrid,
1: torrid affair. And I didn't find it that torrid. I found it no. uh, a little torrid, but not that torrid. More, but uh, more, te- more tepid than torrid it was in between if there's like an in between of tepid and torrid that starts with a t like then i'm there you know? all right um Tor- yeah I'm, torpid torpid no that would be that is a word i think Uh-oh. and that
0: would be also negative um Uh-oh. so no not quite but good job inventing a word that already exists
1: <laughs> um, L- lugubrious that's also a word. Yeah. I know, could, Josh. I, thank you. You
0: could you could argue that this movie is a bit lugubrious. But I, I did feel like there were some <laughs> some love scenes in this movie that that did capture the passion of their affair. I mean, there is the scene, I think is the first sex scene between Almashi and Catherine where she shows up. And he's lying in bed. He's been sleeping and she shows up in the doorway kind of radiant looking in this white dress. And he literally like tears her dress off and they start going at it.
1: Yeah. But you missed the best part of that is that before that happens, she slaps the shit out of him. And well, that, that kind, too. You know, that kind of sets up this passionate love of love, hate affair, I would say.
0: Yeah, there's I mean, and there's a lot of passion there. And and I also like that. Um. He, you know, he rips this dress off and they they make love passionately. And then in the next scene, he's sewing the dress back together because he's considerate like
1: that. No, it's not about being considerate so he doesn't get caught. What's she going to wear when she
0: leaves, bro? Well, or that too. But I just thought that was a nice little detail. So I, I did I did think there's some effective romance in this movie, even though it's it's sort of surrounded by a lot of other stuff that is less effective. And because the movie is so long, it just all feels very, uh, stretched out.
1: Yeah. I think what you're talking about there, that scene, and then, you know, you see, uh, Almasi in the bath and, um, you know, Catherine joins him and, and again, like they're talking to each other affectionately, but then at the same time, he's saying stuff like when this is over, you should just forget me stuff like that. There's definitely this, um, realization that maybe this can't happen outside of this situation and that it shouldn't. And uh like, there's a, a, a bit of hatred they have towards themselves and towards this romance, which I think heightens the whole thing. But then again, you know, she and her husband, uh, Jeffrey, as you mentioned, Col- Colin Firth, like they, as Jeffrey says, they've, you know, he's basically known her since they were kids. They were like brother and sister and then they fell in love. And then uh she just like kicks him to the curb and doesn't really seem to care that much about him after all that stuff. That is true. She does kind of care about him when he uh when he dies, spoiler
0: alert for that.
1: Yeah, but but he she's like, ah, he just tried to murder suicide us. So if you'll bury him, he, that's good enough. He did he did do that. So but I think all of that stuff that you
0: were describing is what makes their affair compelling, is that there is so much internal conflict in in those characters, and then the conflict between them about whether they can be together and whether they're supposed to be together. And and Almashi himself as a character, he's kind of a
1: douche, you know, the way he behaves towards people. No, he's not a douche, he's a count. That's the thing, Josh. There's a a level of decorum that you must have as a count and some of it involves a (laughs) removed douchiness and uh, he's just following it to a T. No, I agree with you. I think, you know, I just, uh, you know, like I said, having had seen this before, I remember that romance and watching it uh, this time, I'm like, it's not as much as I thought. Like, it's very spaced out throughout the movie and not as um, uh, singular as I had thought the movie was.
0: Yeah, this movie is known for being a sweeping romance and there's a lot of other stuff in it that is not as interesting, certainly. Um, I agree with you there. I will say, though, the fact that Amashi's that account, I think, is what allows him to be a douche is because... He's
1: an aristocrat and he's used to just treating people however he wants. That's what I'm telling you, Josh. That's a I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying he has oh, okay. to be somewhat douchey because of his title, you know? Oh, Otherwise okay. he I, wouldn't be I, yeah. count counting correctly. So Yeah.
0: Um Count Count Duchilla is yeah. uh, what he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible pun. No, it's uh, not but, good, Josh. No, it's not. We'll we'll strike that from the record. But there is a secondary romance in this movie, uh, in the the sort of later day, the framing scenes between Juliette Binoche's character, Hannah the nurse, and Naveen from Lost. Saeed from (laughs) Lost. Yes. Kip is his name. He is an Indian officer in the British army who is uh, tasked with bomb disposal. And they have a nice, less douchey, less uh, conflict-filled romance, even though they also ultimately decide that they probably can't
1: be together. And that I felt was a little underdeveloped. I would have liked to see more of that. Underdeveloped, but it does have one of the best scenes of not only this movie, but one of the one great scene in cinema, which is where Kip takes her to, I, I wasn't an abandoned church, I guess um, in yeah, the village church. Yeah. And there are all these frescoes on the wall, all these beautiful paintings. And he set up like this kind of uh, rigging device. So he can lift her in the air like she's in Cirque des Soleil, and he gives her like a a flare, a sparkler, whatever it is, you know, so she can hold the light up to the wall and see these paintings close up as he's, you know, swooping her throughout the the room. And I thought that scene was pretty brilliant. That is a really good scene, and it gives you a good sense of their connection
0: and and what they both care about and why they are drawn to each other. So yeah, that's a good scene, and I feel like there's effective romantic moments. Between Almashi and Catherine as well, the scene where there's like a Christmas party and uh, he's sitting inside and she's out there with with Jeffrey, who's dressed as Santa Claus. And he tells her to pretend to kind of have heat strokes so she can go inside. And he says something like, if you swoon, I'll catch you. I
1: mean, that's a great romantic line. Come yeah. On. Santa Claus, more like Santa cuck, right? Because he got cuckolded. Boom. He did. Uh, <laughs> my point is this. I actually think the best, I know it, I know, yeah, you're, you're alluding to these later romance scenes and that was after they had called it off and he, you know, you know, I can't, uh, I can't breathe without you. I can still taste you, he says. He says right. that to her often. Um, but I, I think the, one of the best scenes of their romance and of the entire film is when they're staying, you know, in the desert waiting for uh, like a supply run or something and a sandstorm comes and they get. Trapped in this uh, jeep together and it's just the two of them trapped in this jeep overnight and you really see kind of the romance bud there and not not in a sexual way but in an intellectual way I would say and I, I thought that scene was was quite good and really set up the the rest of the the passion of the movie.
0: Yeah, I agree. That is a very good scene. And that's a more tentative. He's kind of putting his arm around her and, and, and brushing her hair and stuff. And you see they're going to kind of finally acknowledge this attraction that they've had toward each other. So yeah, I think there's a lot of effective romance. The problem is that it's just surrounded by a lot of other stuff that slows things down and is not as effective. I mean, the whole subplot with Willem Dafoe's character, who's had his thumbs cut off and blames Almashi for this in some way. And it's this big mystery and the big reveal of it is really kind of underwhelming. I I mean, I I love Willem Dafoe. He's a great actor, but I feel like that whole subplot was pretty useless. And I love Juliette Binoche too, and she won an Oscar for this movie, but I feel like Hannah also is really underdeveloped and her romance with Kip is is underdeveloped in a way that you want more of it and you just doesn't get, you don't get that.
1: I agree with you on Hannah. I don't agree with you on uh, Caravaggio, the Willem Dafoe character. You liked him? I mean, I like Willem Dafoe. I'll watch him do anything, you know. Sure. So, but um, but I do think he helped uh, one, jog Almashi's memory, and two, gave a different storytelling device to Almashi, like a reason to recount these things. So and I also don't think that the that that last reveal was um was not worthy of of that final reveal. I thought it was good and effective, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean you're right. He gives him a reason to tell his story, but I think that's one of the problems with the whole Italy storyline is that too many of the characters feel like they are there just to give Almashi a reason to have flashbacks.
1: Yeah, you might be right. You might be right on that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but Almashi, we keep saying, hey, you know that's Ray Fiennes. I think Ray Fiennes quite a performance here.
0: Yeah, I thought his his performance as, and he was also we should say he was nominated for an Oscar, but he didn't win. And uh, his performance as as burned Almashi, uh, I thought was maybe a little overdone at times. The raspiness and the really like, it, I kept thinking of um, Gary Oldman in in Hannibal, where he plays a uh, Mason Verger, who's the like severe. I don't know if he's burned or just severely disfigured, like villain who wants to capture Hannibal Lecter and feed him to his pigs. And that that was not the vibe I think that they were going for. And I saw some other commentators I think on Letterboxd. Letterbox saying that, that this reminds them of uh, later Ray finds when he played Voldemort in the Harry
1: Potter movies. <laughs> so I thought he was great things... in, in this, you know. but
0: no, he is, he is very good, and I think he's very good in the flashbacks. I think in the, in the later scenes when he's the burn victim lying in bed, he maybe overdoes it a
1: little bit. And, oh. and part of that is just because the flashback stuff is so much stronger overall. Well, he's very charismatic in those flashbacks. And, you know, like we said, there's such a sex appeal uh, with him and Kristen Scott Thomas, you know, so I could see where you would just be like, I want to keep watching that. You know, I mean, that's the adventure part of this movie and everything. The exploration. I I just want to say he did not win the best actor that year. But I don't think I honestly don't think there's ever been a stronger best actor nomination year than 1996. Jeffrey Rush wanted for shine. You had Ray fines here for the English patient. You had Tom Cruise for, um, Jerry Maguire. You had Woody Harrelson for the people versus Larry Flint. And you had Billy Bob Thornton for sling blade. Like it's home run. It's home run after home run on that one. Any one of them was mm-hmm. worthy of it. I think a lot of people doing funny voices in that category. Really? <laughs> it was a great year for funny voices. Josh,
0: funny that voices in, in serious roles. Um, no, you're right. I still, like I said, I haven't seen Shine, so I can't comment on Jeffrey Rush in that. But certainly, uh, those other performances are very good. And and I'm not saying that Ray Fiennes isn't good in this movie. I just I do think there's a bit of overacting in in those uh, Italy scenes. But part of that is the tone. Like we were saying, this movie is very old-fashioned, and it's big in every way. It's long. It's got these these vistas, uh, as we said, and the performances go along with that. So this movie is very much in that kind of classical mode and it's about passion and outsized emotions. And then the, the, the acting goes along with that.
1: Yeah. The cinematography, um, the editing all super effective. So I think, you know, if you were going to say, Hey, why, why did it win best picture? I think the mastery of the technical side, along with these performances, you know, you could make that argument. Like I said, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have won for me, but Yeah, hey, man, it's a a very effective film of its ilk. Yeah, I think we should definitely
0: give props to the editing. Uh, Walter Murch, who is, of course, a renowned editor, is the editor on this film. And and I thought, especially because it has to switch back and forth between time periods so frequently, again, for me, it didn't feel like it was hard to follow and the editing really flowed well. And I know, I think he even consulted with Michael Anjati about how to structure that as an editor. So I thought that worked well, but I guess maybe it was you. You had trouble
1: following it at times. I, I didn't have trouble following because of the edit. Like I got, I got. Hey, we're in this time period or this time period. Which uh, merch said they created like forty over forty time transitions, and as you had mentioned, it's the first uh, film to ever win the editing award for uh, you know being digitally edited. So I just think this there was so many little bits of this story that like, sometimes I'm like, wait, is that Maddox or is that this guy? Or is that that guy? You know? And it's like, there was just a lot to keep track of at all points in time in this film.
0: There is a lot. And I feel like there is a lot that's kind of superfluous. Like even Maddox, who is uh, Almashi's kind of like best friend is a character who doesn't really, I mean, he he does a lot of things, but yet nothing that he does is really relevant or important. So, uh, there is that. And again, that was kind of how I felt about Willem Dafoe's character is like, oh, he's so mysterious and whatever. And then he just kind of doesn't amount to much of anything.
1: Yeah. Maybe, maybe he should have tried to kill a burn victim who can't move from bed. That's a fair point, yeah, Josh. That would have been something.
0: So, I mean, and there's also Kip, Naveen Andrews. He has his like, uh, associate, his fellow office, bomb disposal officer guy who has like a tragic death at one point. And I yeah. felt like we didn't know enough about that guy to care about his death. Um, although there is a good suspenseful sequence where Kip is trying to defuse a bomb and all these American tanks are like rumbling over a bridge above him in celebration of the war having ended and it causes this bomb to to activate and nearly explode and this isn't a movie that's really about suspense even if it has adventure and stuff like that but I thought that scene was was pretty effective
1: I agree because they really set it mm-hmm. up with this idea of everyone that Hannah loves ends up dying so this just seemed like he was gonna die and I did think that was Suspenseful um, and effective as well. Dave, what did what did you think of the movie? I
2: thought for the first, I don't, I don't know how long, but the the beginning, I felt it was a little hard to uh, really kind of follow. Like you said, with all the so much happening, so much going on, so much to keep track of. But once you kind of like you know get into the rhythm of what it was trying to do, I I, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was uh, it was beautiful to look at, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, we we should say that Count Almashi was a real person and he did discover the cave of swimmers in like the 30s so
2: yeah this is a
1: with, fictional account but the, you know hey that's kind of cool
0: it is it's cool but it's also weird to me that they would take this real person and make him into like the real count almashi did not get shot down in a plane was not a burn victim did not die in Italy. Like even if the romance was made up, the whole end of his life in this movie is completely made up. In real life, he lived until 1951 and died of like dysentery or something because he was an explorer and he was always in these various places. So it just seems like a weird thing to do with someone. You could take inspiration from a real person's life and, and maybe give it a different name. I don't know. It just struck me as kind of odd.
1: I don't know. We see Tarantino do stuff like that all the time.
0: Yeah, but I feel like with Tarantino, the purpose of it is to say, like, here's this well-known thing and I'm going to spin it and be the fact that it's well-known and I, that I put a spin on it is the point of the movie. But Count Almashi was not, it, it's not like everyone went into this movie being like, oh, I know what really happened to Count Almashi, And this movie is crazy because it
1: changed it up. Like, no one knew who he was before this. Uh, also, I had read that uh, he was, he was, uh, gay in real life. So sweeping romance oh. with Kristen Scott Thomas, Catherine, or any other woman, probably unlikely. And maybe he was bisexual, but uh, probably probably unlikely to happen.
0: Yeah, I hadn't seen that. But that I, I think that's just another reason that there's I mean, it doesn't really have any bearing on the movie. You just if you just think of him as a fictional character, that that takes care of it. Um I don't think it's necessary. You
1: know, we talked about all the Oscars at one. I was surprised that it didn't even get a nod for makeup because of the Five hour process every day that it took Ray finds to get into that uh the burn victim makeup, I thought um it was a great makeup job, yeah,
0: by Jim Henson's creature shop actually mm. uh, or the people responsible for the prosthetics in this movie, yeah, I don't know why mm. that is maybe because he's the only otherwise all the other characters just you know look like normal people, and maybe the the Oscars for makeup ten it's 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 one of those categories where things get nominated for having like the most. In addition right. to just the best, you know, and I don't know what won that year, but it might be was a more special Nutty effects. Professor. There you go. So something where there's a lot more prosthetics uh, and also a movie that is, you know, dramatically much more satisfying. Of course. Hey, uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like the Nutty Professor, the original. One. Hey, you know, uh, you know, we always like to talk about alternate casting here, Josh. On oh, awesome yeah. You love here. that. What, what do you got? Here I do. Okay. So the big one was apparently nobody liked Willem Dafoe. What the heck? Uh, they were always trying to recast him and, uh, the names like the original one, I guess he was offered the part and turned it down was Bruce Willis.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, he could have been fine. I think he would have been fine. Sean Connery, Sean Connery was in talks to do it. And then, uh, so just, I guess either dropped out or didn't do it. Sean Connery is much older than Willem Dafoe. I think that's a weird difference. And then before it went to Miramax, what was at Paramount, right? And they were looking for that star power. And the three names they gave were John Goodman, Danny DeVito, and Richard Dreyfus,
0: As the Willem Dafoe character?
1: Yep. Yes. All right. Interesting wow. those choices. Are, those
0: are terrible ideas. No, nah, they're um,
1: not terrible ideas. I think anyone, they're uh, all quality actors. Yeah. The terrible okay. idea, movie. Let me give you the terrible idea, Josh. Oh, please. Which yeah. was when they were looking for star power. Instead of Kristen Scott Thomas as Catherine, Demi Moore.
0: Yeah, that is a much worse Mm. idea than uh, than her husband at the time (laughs) to play Willem Dafoe's character. I'm trying to imagine Demi Moore. I'm sure she has at some point, but I don't think I've ever seen it. You know, imagining her doing like a British accent and uh, Uh, the the Scarlet Letter, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's possible. I've never seen that, but um, yeah. And the '90s was wasn't this around the time when she was doing like striptease? I think it
1: was the same year, right? This was the same year. Yeah. And
2: so
0: she was trying to be all like provocative and whatever. So uh, maybe she would have been, uh, you know, pushing for more sex scenes or something. I don't know. sounds like a bad idea. I'm glad they didn't go with her.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, this has been alternate casting.
0: (laughs) It's always interesting to think about that. And I know you always uh, find those out when there's uh, something to find out.
1: So should we... uh, should we rate this out of five uh, biplanes or something? Yeah, like that? I think biplanes is good because one thing we didn't mention was the cinematography on all the flying sequences was awesome.
0: It was. And that's another moment where I think it would have been great to see this movie on a big screen. You would really be able to appreciate that better.
1: Yeah, that uh, mm. that attempted murder-suicide by biplane, I I really brought me back to North by Northwest the way that was shot.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that was intentional uh, when it's coming down, bearing down on Almashi like that. I'm sure that was something they were thinking of.
1: And what a way to murder-suicide someone with a biplane. Um, and unsuccessfully, he yeah. only suicided and didn't murder. Well, he kind of murdered, but he murdered his wife, but not really the, the person he was trying to murder. Well, I think he was trying to murder them all. Right. It was almost like I, a I double so. murder, single suicide. But yeah, so yeah, fa- failed. really, really am- ambitious on, his on, a part, bi- so. on a biplane failed, failed. <laughs> yeah. so, so out of five biplanes, I'm going to still give it three biplanes because there was the performances were excellent. There was enough good stuff in the story. And uh, technically, it's, you know, amazing. So I'm going to say three out of five.
0: I'm going to agree with you on everything that you just said. Three out of five, great performances, technically impressive, just too much other stuff yeah i agree so uh, dave dave uh what do you want to rate
2: it i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with you guys with another three right here
0: all right well nice when we can all agree about something yeah such a genial podcast feels good that we have this feels really good guys all right (laughs) so we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of the english patient Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about The English Patient, the Best Picture winner at the Oscars. And we've talked quite a bit already about one of the legacies of this movie, which was Miramax and the Weinsteins like kind of steamrolling no, over the Oscars. Almost
1: hijacking to the-, the Oscars.
0: Yeah. And this is a major example. I think this and Shakespeare in Love, which came two years later, are probably the biggest example of that happening. Yes, there may be others. You're right.
1: And in both of those films, Colin Firth loses a lover to a Fiennes brother. Oh, wow. That's, that's an impressive connection that you came mm. up with there. I didn't come up with it. I You know you look up the trivia on this stuff.
0: So. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is a movie that, on the one hand, I feel like, as opposed to Shakespeare in Love, which is in 1998 when Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture, it won over Saving Private Ryan. And Saving Private Ryan is like the quintessential kind of movie that you think would win an Oscar. So that was a big upset. But with this one, even though maybe people were hoping uh, or expecting Fargo to win, I think in that case, Fargo winning would have really been the upset because this is, in addition to its Miramax backing, is really the kind of movie that you think of as an Oscar
1: winner. I think so. I just think, like, dude, if Jerry Maguire had won or, you know, Shine had won, like, I could see any of those three coming. I just think like, you're right, like this does have that Oscar uh, bait to it. But I I think really the only one that would have surprised me is Secrets and Lies. Yeah, which
0: I mean, and we obviously we had that whole episode and we both really like Secrets and Lies, but that does seem like a little too uh, challenging maybe for the Oscars. But the Miramax was definitely in in the 90s and probably through like the early 00s was really a dominant force there at the Oscars getting uh, kind of strong arming some of their movies. Right. And
1: I think the thing about Saving Private Ryan is it was also up against one, two, it was up against at least two other, three other war movies, if you want to say it straight. It's the, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, The Thin Red Line. So you almost wonder if those kind of canceled each other out.
0: Yeah, that's possible. I mean, there's we we never really know exactly like the little logistics of why it happened. But that was certainly like a much more surprising upset. I mean, I think going in and I don't remember if I watched the 1996 Oscars, but I think going into those that year, the English patient, patient was clearly the movie that people expected to do very well. And it did. Whereas in 98, I think people all expected Saving Private Ryan to win. And so that was a bigger surprise. Yeah, I I agree. So, and this was also a big boost for Anthony Minghella, who had made a few other movies before this that I have not seen. But after this came out, he was obviously like a hugely in demand, you know, major auteur figure. And he made a couple other acclaimed and uh, Oscar nominated movies after this, The Talented Mr. Ripley and Cold Mountain. Um, and then he made one more movie called Breaking and Entering, which isn't very good. And then he sadly died, uh, quite young at, in his early fifties. But, um, for a brief period, this, this pushed him into that position of being like one of the major directors in
1: Hollywood. Right. He was 54 when he died. And it's like, you wonder how much good work was left behind. You know, obviously it's, we uh, obviously know it's sad that he died as a person, but (laughs) as an artist, there's probably a lot of good work that could have been done as well.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, to me, I haven't seen it in a long time, but uh, The Talented R- Mr. Ripley, I think is just a fantastic, like amazing movie. Cold Mountain is okay. Um, and I didn't I think like maybe Cold he, Mountain. Yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it might be another one of those Miramax. I don't know if it was Miramax, but it probably was that that they pushed into the awards conversation. And he maybe got pushed into that box of making those awards bait movies. And if he had been able to continue on I think you're right. He could have had something else in him and could have done something more adventurous or or maybe done another big scale movie that was a little more uh, distinctive. Yeah, personal. Um, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities that uh, unfortunately were never realized. I will say his son, Max Minghella, who is an actor and has recently moved into writing and directing, made a movie called uh, Teen Spirit last year with Elle Fanning,
1: which was, uh, you know, it was all right. So all right. I got to go back and watch Ripley. I actually that's one I have never seen and I know I should have seen.
0: Oh, man, yeah, you should definitely see. I mean, it's been a long time I I haven't seen it since it first came out, but I just remember absolutely loving that. And that's a movie that right, I think maybe. has more kind of it it has romance and 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 the the vistas, but it's got a lot more complexity maybe, uh moral complexity to it yeah. uh
1: than than this does. Can, a few more things about the Oscars and about the length of yeah. this movie. So the Mangella cut, as we all know from the Snyder cut, having a director's <laughs> cut here is so important. The first Mangella cut was four hours and 10 minutes. So oh, imagine man. what that was. I don't want to imagine that. He, uh, he did 20 drafts of the screenplay. So, you know, this is a um, very uh, meticulous worker he was in this, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. And then I wanted to say something about the Oscars because- Uh, One thing we didn't mention was Saul Zance, who, you know, gets the best picture Oscar because he produced it, also won the uh, Irving G. Thalberg Award this year for the Lifetime Achievement. And of course, uh, the legacy of Saul Zance is that I hate him because he sued John Fogerty for plagiarizing his own music.
0: Yeah, he has that legacy, and I think he also had a lot of battles with the producers of the uh, Lord of the Rings movies, I want to say. Yeah, he did. But I mean, part of that is because his career as a movie producer was buying these major literary works and bringing them to the screen, in a lot of cases like this, very successfully. So, uh, you know, he can be a complex figure.
1: Yeah, but I don't like him, because you can't sue John Fogerty for plagiarizing the music of Creedence Clearwater Revival, which he wrote and performed, Josh. Shame on you dead Zance, I mean, obviously you can do it. It's just He lost not, the lawsuit. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I was like related to the, the four and a half hour cut. This definitely seems like the kind of thing that would not get made today because instead of a movie, it would be like an eight part HBO miniseries or something instead.
1: Right. Uh, of course, you know, the best thing about the length of it was, wasn't there that Seinfeld episode where Jay Peterman makes Elaine go see it. And she's, she's just saying, it's just so long, you know? So I was hoping yeah. you'd bring it
2: up.
0: Yeah, the Seinfeld episode is a major legacy of this movie. And honestly, before seeing this, that was like my primary source of information about this movie was that Seinfeld episode about how much Elaine hates The English Patient. And I think even though this is a fairly well-respected movie still to this day, I think that Seinfeld movie has given uh, The English Patient the reputation of being like something that's like long and slow and hard to get through. To the point where I think, Jason, both you and I, before we
1: watched it this time, uh, remarked on how it isn't actually nearly as long no. as we thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was going to be over three hours. And and even for this uh, podcast, we've watched movies about this length, of course, you know, four months, yeah. two days, two weeks in reverse uh, and some other things. So it's like, you know, come on, man. But it's hilarious because, like, but it does feel longer than what it, it actually is. It does. It does feel long. I mean, we just talked
0: about Paradise Lost uh, in a, a right. few episodes ago. That's that's nearly as long as this. Yeah. But yeah, this this does feel long. So, uh, of course, uh, on the acting front, all of these are the th- the three stars: Ray Fiennes, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Juliette Binoche, who were all nominated for Oscars. Were, were all successful prior to this, but this was certainly a boost for them. And and all three of them, I think, have balanced. In their careers, making bigger Hollywood things with a lot of independent uh, films, Kristen Scott Thomas and Juliette Binoche both appear in a lot of French films, um, and Ray Fiennes, you know, goes from starring as Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies to doing a lot of more challenging, smaller work. Yeah. So it seems like they, they all three of them, parlayed their Oscar success into strong
1: careers. Yeah, after that, I think the fact that they can work in to quote unquote American film industry and the European film industry really affords them a lot of opportunities uh ray fines and Kristen scott thomas have appeared in a number of films together including one before oh. this and a couple of after and uh two fun facts i saw while researching were both willem defoe and ray fines played jesus so that's fun ray fines of yeah. the uh, miracle maker uh willem defoe of course in the last temptation of christ and let's not forget they were both on screen in the grand budapest hotel Mm-hmm. those facts are really not that fun dave were they fun i you know what i had a great time <laughs> well, here, here josh i got one more fun one for you talking yeah. about the oscars the Oscars mm-hmm. where uh where we know this this baddie won nine of them right when andrew lloyd Webber won for best original song you must love me evita he said on stage yeah. Thank heavens there wasn't an original song in the English patient is all I can say. I like that.
0: Yeah, that is certainly one of the better things that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has ever created was that that line from the Oscars. <laughs> was that a fun <laughs> enough fact for you, Josh? That was fun. Hey, yeah.
1: one other thing we mentioned. Um, <laughs> yes. Give me Michael's name there, the author, the last name. Anjante? Oh, Michael Anjati. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of had alluded that he and Walter Murch had these conversations about how to edit this. Uh there is a book that Anjate wrote uh, the Conversations, Walter Merch and the Art of Editing. and you know, Merch uh, legendary editor, Godfather, Apocalypse, uh, The Conversation. So yeah,, uh,
0: probably worth reading probably yes. and uh, and I was interested because this was such a this was such a big movie, as such a successful movie, and it was the book was so successful. I was sort of surprised to see that none of his other novels have been adapted into films or TV series, hmm. including a novel that he wrote that features both Hannah. And Caravaggio as characters that takes place before the English patient, but um, none of that stuff. I'm I'm surprised. I mean, and and in this era of all of these big mini series adaptations, I, I could absolutely see one of his books eventually making its way to like Netflix or Hulu or something like that. But it has not happened yet. Yeah, um, I think we should also just mention, as as you briefly did, Naveen Andrews, Saeed on Lost.
1: Come on. I know. I love it. I, well, we, we, none of us were happy with the way Lost ended in retrospect, but Saeed was a very good character.
0: He was good. And I hadn't, I I had always thought of Lost as like his big break. And I didn't realize he was in this movie and has a very substantial role in this movie. So uh, it was nice to see him and he's worked steadily on TV. He hasn't, you know, become a big movie star or anything, but in addition to Lost, he's been a a regular on a number of other TV shows, and he's a, a steadily working actor and uh, and maybe kind of an
1: underrated actor. I world. think so. I think that's fair, Josh.
0: Yeah. So uh, any other uh, thoughts on the legacy of this film? I got none. Dave, any? No, not really. I think we covered it. Leave, jo- huh? leave John Fogarty alone. He's a legend. <laughs> that's the ultimate lesson of the English patient <laughs> is leave John Fogarty
1: alone. Let him be. Sup- support him basket him, enjoy him. He's a legend, man. Josh, we've seen Fogarty together, haven't we? Twice, we have at least live. twice, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's. I'm not I'm not speaking ill of John Fogarty. He's great, very talented. Yeah, we love John Fogarty really? here on Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> not relevant to the English patient, though, but uh, that's a great thought to wrap up on. <laughs> and uh, that's the English patient. <laughs> And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on the social
1: media. Yeah, I'm at John uh, John FogartyFan One. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and uh, Instagram, J Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Wow, you're gonna love it. Uh, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com. awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, and awesomemoviepod on Twitter.
0: You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: You can find us wherever you listen to this great podcast and follow us on social media at piecingpod. What do we have
0: for our next episode, Jason? Well, am I should I turn it over to Dave? Oh, yeah. let's Let's do that. Dave, what's on our next episode? Is it time for my pick again?
1: I believe I think it, it is. is. Gonna, I'm excited. We're going to let wow. you out of the basement. We're going to open your cage yeah. and allow you to pick a movie. And if we're wrong, All we're right. going to do it next time anyway. So it's your pick, Dave.
2: Well, I'm excited to revisit this one. I haven't seen it in a long time. It is Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to watching it again. Peter
1: Jackson, director of Lord of the Rings, produced by Saul Zance, Dickhead who tried to fuck over John Fogerty. Screw you, Zance. Tune in next time for more discussion
0: of John Fogarty and the Frighteners. Thanks for listening to Awesome
2: Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.